Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Celebrations Nakama. Why am I so happy? Why could I be so happy? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because my book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to buy. Hooray! Forget all that and pre-ordering forget all that you can actually buy it you can buy it all over the world through the wonders of the internet you can pay in a wide range of currencies and all you have to do is go to our website which is livinghistorytv.com livinghistorytv.com you know it makes sense buy today a living history production I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to Peter Hart's Military History Podcast. And I'm here at the lovely house of of my chum, Gary Bain. Hello, Gary. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, hello. Hello, Pete. I've noticed we don't go to your house anymore. You're like ashamed of me or something. Uh, the family asked me not to invite you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's They what said I mean. something about a pervading odour. I, I don't know what... I think it's Fred. I think it's Fred. The, 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 the odour to Fred the farting dog sort of clings to your clothing. Mind you, as I walked here in rather fast time, I'm not sure I'm entirely odour-free this morning. <clears throat> yeah, and I've noticed Fred often clings to you when you arrive at the door. <laughs> he loves me. Yeah, well, it's one way of describing it. Now, what are we doing today? Tell us, 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 tell us. Well, today we're, we're going to, with a slight departure, we're going to concentrate on a, a, a few individual soldiers and uh, the, the clue is in the title of the podcast. It's called Loose Soldiers. Now, I knew one or two loose soldiers <laughs> that I met in Aldershot in 1979. But they were loose all a, over the place. That's a different story. <laughs> and this is, this is going to probably be out on the anniversary. That's what's put it in mind, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, clearly, we're going to concentrate in one area uh, of the Western Front uh, in uh, uh, September 1915, I nearly said 2015. <laughs> that would have been a really boring podcast. So, so let's start. Uh, so we, we've got a few, uh, just a few we picked out. And it's a slightly cliched choice in some way, I think. Uh, but on the other hand, we've tried to reflect just 
things that people talk about of these. The, uh, and we've got our own angle, which two, certainly two of them reflect. And then there's the one we missed out, which we're also going to talk about. So let's start. And what, what we're going to start with is Captain Arthur Sampson and Robert Graves, uh, second lieutenant Robert Graves. Yeah, to give him his full name, Robert von Ranker Graves, uh, which was taken from his, his mother's side of the family, uh, uh, Amelie, I believe her name was, Amelie von Ranker Graves, um, who was related to a great German historian, Leopold von Ranker. So somewhat conflicted with his nationalities. He was a, uh, uh, his father was a, a great supporter of, uh, of uh, Gaelic poems and songs. And Is he so Irish? He, he was, yes. Um, Otherwise, that would have been quite strange. That's <laughs> what I meant. <laughs> it could have been Welsh, I suppose. Yeah. So, right, well, well let, let's, let's talk. We're to Robert Graves, he was born 28th of July, 1895, um, and educated at... Uh, no, didn't go. Didn't go to Charterhouse. <laughs> Went to, he was educated at Charterhouse, and uh, on the declaration of war, he'd, he'd got a commission in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, a fine, fine body, body of men, yeah. And, and in May 1915, he was sent to France, initially posted to the 2nd Welsh Regiment. Then after a couple of months, he was posted to the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, 2nd Battalion Royal Welsh Fusiliers at Levante. Now, um, I think, would, would you accept that graves could be quite difficult in some ways in a a variety of ways i don't mean unpleasant necessarily either but just somebody who's a bit of a handful uh opinionated he was known as a bit of a rebel even in as much as how he dressed for example he didn't follow fashion um he would argue he was setting his own Uh, so yeah he, he could be quite difficult and uh uh, he, he's most famous to us in, well, I, Claudius, and, and various other great works, but uh, his uh, semi-fictional, I'm going to insert, autobiographical, autobiographical, <laughs> ah, my first spoonerism of the day, uh, goodbye to all that. You, now, you can't rely on this for fact, and, and I know that there's lots of controversy amongst the officers of, of his battalions, the various battalions. But, but a very successful book, and it's never been out of print. Well, it's a great read, and it covers subjects that others don't. Um, whether it's true in, in what it covers entirely is a different matter. But I, I remember it made a big impact to me. I thought it was a great book. When he joined the uh, the second battalion, uh, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, he um, he um, he he has this idea the officers didn't take the war seriously, and were overly concerned with maintaining regimental traditions. Now. Um, what do you think about that, uh, Gary? I know what I think, but what do you think about that? Well, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, the, the officers had suffered an, an awful winter in 1914 campaign. And uh, let's face it, the army works by the traditions that it follows. So uh, I think uh, he, he was probably not well thought of for that view. And, 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 and they, tend to, they tend to make a joke of things, don't they? I mean, when, when you say don't take things seriously, you can actually just be... That's your way of getting through something is to have a laugh. Yeah, uh, it's it's a psychological defence mechanism, and and Graves may have been getting this wrong. Now he gets a lot of things wrong in this in this. I mean, his interaction with the army is 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 mixed. Um, now. Um, let, let, so the other gentleman, Captain Arthur Sampson, and uh, now he's one of these regular officers. Uh, he was born in London on the first of June, eighteen eighty-two. So he's a lot older. Uh, he's educated, <laughs> educated at 
Eton uh, Eton and Merton College, Oxford. So um, privileged and possibly bright. Not everyone who goes to uh, Oxford from Eton is bright, as we know uh, from uh, certain recent examples. Um, he was commissioned into the Second Royal Welsh Fusiliers in 1904. Promoted to lieutenant in uh, the, the, it was uh, later in that year. Served in Burma and India. Promoted to captain in 1912. I'd say he's a punctilious, well thought of soldier. What a, in the uh, in, in uh, uh, Dunn's book on the on the on the battalion on uh, the battalion, a famous book, the War of the Infantry New or something. Um, he's mentioned as as he, he always tried to keep clean. And he was a punctilious regular soldier and i would imagine he believed in regimental traditions and and that kind of thing do you try to keep clean pete uh yeah uh, after a long hot sweaty walk just the five miles folks to get here um i sometimes can be slightly odiferous yeah you need to try a bit harder one one mention in the, in uh, the regimental histories uh well I, I can't remember whether it's in the the big regimental history of the of or uh, done is that uh, in the depths of winter he used his initiative and, and he got a dog cart to to bring up the the rations. So he's not entirely hidebound. He's he's a, and uh, he's all, he's already been by this stage awarded the military cross and mentioned in dispatches. So he's a good soldier. He's a good soldier, and he's one of the ones that, of course, Graves is casting aspersions at. Uh, I think to, I, th- I think Graves falls into the facile. And he he makes judgments that are just easy. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree. Uh, now, what, uh, Graves, uh, he, he refers to the Battle of Loos in his book as a, a bloody balls up. That's an example of, that's language you wouldn't find in most autobiographies of the time. And he reckons only five of the company officers survived unscathed. I don't know about that. But you're going to read a quote for, for as second lieutenant Robert Graves. And you, 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 he, he, go on, go, go, Gary, go, 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 go. Captain Sampson with C Company and the remainder of B Company reached our front line. Finding the gas cylinders still whistling and the trench full of dying men, he decided to go over too. He could not have it said that the Royal Welsh had let down the Middlesex. A strong comradely feeling bound the Middlesex and the Royal Welsh, intensified by the accident that the other three battalions in the brigade were Scottish and that our Scottish brigadier was, unjustly no doubt, accused of favouring them. Our adjutant, Captain Owen... I looked him up. That that wasn't in the original. I, just, I, I thought you might like to know his name, my Scottish friends, in view of what's going to be said now. Our adjutant, Captain Owen, voiced the extreme non-Scottish view. The jocks are all the same, both the trousered kind and the bare-arsed kind. They're dirty in trenches, they skype too much, and they charge like hell, both ways. So Samson charged with C and the remainder of B Company. That is a foul aspersion on Scottish troops. We won't have it, will we, Gary? I'm Scottish, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell by the accent. Yes, I, I can hear the... Now, um, so Samson, he, he's, what, happens to, what happens to him? Well, he is mortally wounded and uh, he's just outside the front line wire. And uh, this is Lieutenant H. Blair of the 2nd Royal Welsh Fusiliers. And he says... We may have gone 40 yards, and then the line just fell down. Samson was killed. Goldsmith and I were badly wounded. The casualties among the men were heavy. 
I was out of the picture with a fractured pelvis. A less wounded man near me wanted to carry me in, but I told him we would both be shot, however. He started to get up and was wounded again immediately. I crawled back slowly and was laid in the bottom of the trench, where I was nearly suffocated with gas before the doctor came and had me moved to a narrow communication trench. I lay there for five hours. Now, it's just occurred to me, we haven't mentioned, this is the attack on the 25th of September. That's great, of 1915. I should have mentioned that before. Uh, this is what's happening on that day. Now, one of the officers told Graves what had happened, and this, this is what, what uh, Graves reported, this officer had said. Whether you believe it or not is uh, entirely up to you. And this is, this is, is this in the area of the, uh, the brick stacks? Don't know. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that, Pete. I'm always there for you. Thanks, mate. <laughs> to be absolutely honest, I've forgotten. Uh, you'd think I'd know, wouldn't you? I feel ashamed now. So this officer told Graves, it had been agreed to advance by platoon rushes with supporting fire. Uh, when his, so this is Graves saying this. You know, when his platoon had gone about 20 yards, he signalled them to lie down and open covering fire. The din was tremendous. He saw the platoon on his left flopping down too, so he whistled the advance again. Nobody seemed to hear. He jumped up from his shell hole, waved and signalled, forward. Nobody stirred. He shouted, you bloody carrots, are you leaving me to go on alone? His platoon sergeant, groaning with a broken shoulder, gas. No, not cowards, sir, willing enough, but they're all fucking dead. The Pope's nose machine gun traversing had caught them as they rose to the whistle. So you know where Pope's nose is, so that tells everybody. Well, there's always a Pope's nose. Is that? Oh. Yeah, there was a Pope's nose on the Somme as well. Oh, so. there is, isn't there? Of yeah. there is. <laughs> so that's not really very helpful. That's... The Tietville, I know that one better. I don't know the loose battlefield very well. In fact, I'll be honest with you, punters, I've never been there. So have I just imp- uh, impressed you with my depth of knowledge there? Yes. Okay. Excellent. I'll get my coat. <laughs> now, uh, Graves is coming up with A Company. Uh, he's co- they're coming up in support. And this is a direct quote from from Graves here. You're Robert Graves again, aren't you, Gary? Yeah, and this is rather fitting. You'll see in the first line. My mouth was dry, my eyes out of focus, and my eyes are out of focus. Yes, and slightly crossed. And my legs quaking under me. I rest my case. Are you saying you're having some kind of knee tremble? I found a water bottle full of rum and drank about half a pint. It quieted me. What, <laughs> <And> anyone? My... <laughs> yeah, that's one way of putting it. Uh, and my head remained clear. Samson lay groaning about 20 yards beyond the front trench. Several attempts were made to rescue him. He had been very badly hit. Three men got killed in these attempts. Two officers and two men wounded. In the end, his own orderly managed to crawl out to him. Samson waved him back, saying that he was riddled through and not worth rescuing. He sent his apologies to the company for making such a noise. And then I think the attack's postponed. Graves doesn't have to go over, does he? Because he'd have been he'd have been the late Robert Graves. Yeah, that's that's perfectly possible. So you could argue that he was effectively saved by the fact that the attack was postponed. And he he goes on to say, at dusk we all went out to get in the wounded, leaving only sentries in the line. The first dead body I came upon was Sampson's, hit in seventeen places. I found that he had forced his knuckles into his mouth to stop himself crying out and attracting any more men to their death. 
Now, that, th this is a, a, an amazing story. And, and I think you treat any story of Graves' with caution. But th there's something going on here because people do think a lot of Samson. And certainly Graves thought a lot of him. Uh, however much he may exaggerate, he thought enough of him to write a rather moving poem, which you're going to read a couple of extracts from. Uh, and like all poetry... Uh, it has a power, I think. Um, it, it doesn't always tell exactly what happened, but it has a power. Yeah, it's called The Dead Fox Hunter, and, and I'm going to concentrate on uh, uh, just two parts of it, and, and you'll, you'll appreciate why. We found the little captain at the head. His men lay well aligned. We touched his hand, stone cold, and he was dead, and they all dead behind. Had never reached their goal, but they died well. They charged in line, and in the same line fell. For those who live uprightly and die true, heaven has no bars or locks, and serves all taste, or what's for him to do, up there but hunt the fox. Angelic choirs no justice must provide, for one who's, who rose straight and in hunting died. So if heaven had no hunt before he came, why it must find one now? And uh, presumably Samson was an enthusiastic fox hunter, or this makes very little sense. But it, I, it's, I think it's a, a, a nice piece of work. I, I, I actually, I, it's not one of my favourite poems, but when you know the circumstances of Samson's death, I think it does have a resonance, doesn't it? Uh, you, uh, now, you've got a photograph. Now, come on, because you see into the future, don't you? Yeah, several years ago, um, and, and this will come up again later in the podcast, I took a, a photograph of a, a couple of uh, headstones, which is not something I ordinarily do, actually. I don't often visit cemeteries. And I took a, a photograph of uh, Captain Arthur Sampson's headstone. Uh, he's buried in the Cambrian Churchyard Extension. Um, there are a number of uh, 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 graves there, including the Middlesex that... Uh, was referred to earlier and his epitaph is magnificent and I, I believe you're going to read the epitaph Pete. well it is magnificent of all thy brave adventures this the last the bravest was the best and I think that it's a bit Peter Panish but it it, it it is I think I think Samson was clearly a very brave man now as for graves uh, there's just one quote which I, I have specially selected because because I have a I have a strange attitude to Graves. I like him and I don't like him. And this is from Captain J.C. Dunn, from, uh, uh, from, who's the medical officer of, uh, of the battalion. He said this, A company headquarters was the cell of a house near Braddle Point. My only occupants were two much-made-of kittens. Oh, lovely little kittens. So lovely. And Graves. Graves had reputedly the largest feet in the army and a genius for putting both of them in everything he put one on a kitten it was enough not long afterwards he was transferred to the first battalion not the first battalion oh, the shame the shame of it i, I think that's a, a story i don't think graves is popular and uh, i know he fell out with almost every officer over his autobiography he fell out with sassoon he fell out with most people but an interesting man and and in many ways a great man and uh, he, uh well he certainly went on to have a fantastic uh career following the army you, you mentioned di claudius uh, uh which you know i i remember from my sort of adolescence um it was a fantastic serial on tv he, he was brilliant. 
Uh, he moved to Mallorca as well. He lived uh, a, a, a very... He died in 1985-ish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Great yeah. man. Uh, but 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 an interesting, controversial figure at times. Now, the next one was specially... Tra- this is a sort of private Emile Morin. Uh, Moran? Morin? He's a sergeant. He's a sergeant, thank you. <laughs> of course he is. And I can see he's a sergeant there, just written out. It, yeah, the clue is where it says Sergeant Emile Moran. It's as if I lacked any sort of ability to read. Now, uh, why why have we picked him? He's not in the Battle of Loose, is he? Well, why have we picked him, Gary? Well, it, it, we've covered this off before in other podcasts. You know, we refer to the Loose Offensive characteristically as the big push. Um, and we've often mentioned you know, what the French are doing at the same time, which often overshadows our big pushes. The Germans barely mention the Battle of Luce in their official history. Uh, and and the, 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 uh, the French are smashing into the Germans in Champagne and up on Vimy Ridge, that whole area. Now, uh, uh, they're, 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 they're basically the French 10th Army... Are, are, uh, the, 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 the defences facing them are just really strong on Vimy Ridge. Uh, and when they launch their attack at 12.25 on the 25th yeah, of September, so this is ex- same, this is day, same day, it was just excruciating. And you've got an account from Sergeant Emile Moran, 60th Regiment of Infantry. Uh, go on, Gary. En avant. The command was passed rapidly, as if transmitted by an electric as if he was current. in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Without hesitation, we leapt over Hang the on. parapet. <laughs> we left. <laughs> Immediately, men were hit and fell back heavily into the trench. Straining every sinew, the survivors threw themselves towards the enemy, screaming. The firing redoubled in intensity. A roaring fire, uh, rifle and machine guns. The bullets came from everywhere. I hear the rattle in my ears, an endless banging. One bullet cuts the zero from my tunic collar. So he's referring to the number there. Yeah. Others pierce my greatcoat and shred the handkerchief in my trousers. The barrage of artillery shells fall close around us. The noise was indescribable. Terrifying explosions erupt everywhere and acrid smoke rises up. All around me, our assorting wave is crumbling, falling apart. Men tumbling on top of each other. The adjutant ran behind me. He was wounded in the forehead and blood trickled down his cheek. He shouted, The bastards! They've punctured my brandy flask! I'd be quite upset about that as well. On avant! On avant! Brandishing his revolver, apparently indifferent to his wound, but another bullet finishes him off. For a few appalling seconds... I run on with fixed bayonet. How far have I got? 50 metres? 100 metres? I don't know. Suddenly, I am brought, brutally brought up short and fall full length to the ground without letting go of my rifle. A bullet or shrapnel ball has hit me, but at the time, I don't know what it was or where I've been hit. I got up immediately and went forward looking for a hole in which to hide. At the same time, I did not let go of my rifle. How could I go on? I unsling all my kit, my belt, my bandolier, and threw myself into a shell hole. This will save me. Barely hidden behind in this shallow hole, I can draw breath and reflect. I can feel that I have been wounded in the left 
buttock. Blood flows, but it doesn't bother me. I want to save my skin and completely forget the pain. The bullets continue to hiss past. The shells fall and the last remnants still standing are soon killed. I think that's a brilliant account. And, and notice the humour in the middle of it. And then that humour sort of dashed from our... Uh, yeah. It's so funny. So funny. More brandy. And then, of course, the bloke's killed. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's a great account. They make some gains uh, on the Lorette Spur. You've been to Lorette Spur, and I, even I've been there. Uh, it's amazing to see. We always bang on about that. Just the Canadian achievement is enormous, but there are the French had smashed their way up, up, up the Lorette Spur towards Suchet. And again, we should probably mention the uh, the, the the memorial, the French memorial at Notre Dame de Lorette, is quite magnificent um, and contains thousands upon thousands. Um, within its uh, within Ossuary. its grounds, yeah. Uh, that is so. That's like the Duermont one, I presume. I would you know I've been to. I have, yeah. I've, now uh, they do. They they capture Souches. They make gains on Vimy Ridge, but it's just awful fighting, and uh, their, their attacks are suspended on the thirtieth of September. Now the next one. Um, the next one. Uh, well, the next one's going to be um, you, Peter. It's it's Private Walter Spencer of the Fourth Grenadier Guards. Now. On the 28th of September, the guards were sent in to attack Hill 70. Spencer gives us a, a, a really wonderful account of what happened as they completed the capture of Loose and they moved onwards and upwards. Onwards and upwards, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the right phrase for what happens next. Uh, yeah, Walter Spencer was a cracking uh, in person I interviewed for the Imperial War Museum. You can, I believe, listen to it. In fact, I'm certain you can listen to it on the uh, War Museum website. He was a great veteran. Uh, he lived in Nottingham when I saw him. Uh, and uh, this is the first quote from him. Remember, he's with the 4th Grenadier Guards and he said, this. There were a lot of dead Highland light infantry still hanging on the old German wire. I wasn't very thrilled. We were all a bit despondent. We didn't realise in our young minds that war was so drastic. They were the first dead troops we'd seen. Luce was still occupied by German soldiers at the top end. There was a colliery erection sticking up in the air called Tower Bridge. That was the place we had to march on. Now, it was called Tower Bridge, Pete, because if you look at photographs, there are plenty available on the, the internet. It does actually look like London's Tower Bridge. So, again, soldiers giving something a name, say what you see. That, 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 hence why there's so many bare-arse uh, hills all around the world. <laughs> uh, so so they split up into companies, and, and they are advancing through the streets of Luce. And, he, and Spencer says this, Brigadier Hayward said to me, Where's your CO? I replied, I believe he's been gassed, sir. He says, gas be buggered. <laughs> that was the actual words he said. <laughs> there was some affected by the chlorine gas and they put their gas helmets on. It was up to them. The old shirt helmet was a hood of cloth with artificial lenses to see through. It also had a nose clip so you couldn't breathe through your nose. And all the air that you, could, that you breathe had to come through the tube that went into your mouth. Not very effective, I'm sorry to say. I didn't put my helmet on. There wasn't sufficient gas about it. You could certainly smell it, but it wasn't sufficient to cause any trouble. We were in extended order, about four or five yards between each man. Got amongst the cellars and threw a few Mills bombs about in case there were any Germans around. If you went down and there were Germans there, they'd get you before you got them. But if instead of going down, you throw the bomb, you're not involved. And they are. 
And that's why uh, I haven't seen the film, but that's one of the big criticisms of that 1917 film is that they oh, go yeah, into yeah, they the, go in they go into the dugouts with, lo- with little torches on their rifles, I believe. And, and that's not what troops do. Troops don't take chances to just throw Mills bombs in. Uh, um, uh, 36 hand grenades. Um, now, uh, the Germans... What happens to them? Uh, well, they retire up onto Hill 70. This is the dominant ground overlooking the, the town of Luce. And uh, they retire there. So Spencer says, Walter Spencer says, getting towards night time, it was dark and we were lying in the open just above the village. Jerry was firing his very lights to see who was moving about. And one came down straight on my back. It burnt a hole straight through my haversack. And I didn't move in case Jerry put his machine gun on me. Fortunately, it burnt out. I couldn't have done much about it. We laid out there for two or three hours. When it was completely dark, we made a rush for what had been a German communication trench. The machine gun fire was very intense, but but there was no artillery fire. We were on a hill, you see, and he couldn't get his shells to drop just where he wanted them. The machine guns were mowing us down. You could see men dropping. All you could hope was that you weren't going to be the next. You could hear the bullets whizzing by, but as long as they didn't hit you... You were all right. Great, great soldier's attitude there. We tried to dig in a bit deeper. It was only about two foot six inch deep and we tried to get as much cover as we could. It was a job to dig far with an entrenching tool. That's the practical angle. Uh, Entrenching tools haven't changed to this day, I don't think. They're still not easy to dig with. We made it about a yard to four foot deep. We remained in that position all the next day. We just had to lie there. It was an awful position to lie for hours and hours and not be able to move. He had so many machine guns on it. They reinforced their front line preparatory for an attack. They didn't actually make it while we were there. The Middlesex got it the next night. Again, that great soldier attitude. I'm all right, Jack. Yeah, Middlesex got it. Bugger the Middlesex, to use the vernacular. Now, one of the troops, uh, we're going to go on to the next one. Uh, and this is, uh, uh, how do you pronounce it, Gary? Uh, I would say it's Weifeldwebel. And what does that mean? Well, sort of Weifeldwebel, so Weiss, uh, so sort of Staff Sergeant, I suppose, would be the equivalent. And, and this is Staff Sergeant, then to me, G- Giseke? Giseke. Giseke, yeah. Now, uh, so he's serving with the 2nd Battalion of the 178th regiment infantry regiment one two third german it's a german division um, this is a german because you can't look at a battle in isolation and here we both want to pay tribute to jack sheldon and and this is where this quote comes from and he's he has done the series of books which are invaluable because he does all that hard work that we lazy brits who can't speak any other english uh, any other like can't speak english we can't speak english now what are you talking <laughs> about any other he's done all this work translating german sources and presenting them in a series of books published by pen and sword a little bit of an advertisement for them uh, and they they they're absolutely invaluable and and so you're going to read them now where are they um they he's he, his battalion once uh, second 178th they're in reserve uh, detached from the, the the division and they're on high ground near lens and firstly we're going to step back in time back to the 25th because he he actually sees the attack go in the, the gas attack and everything else and he gives a good account of that doesn't it gary yeah so this is a gas attack on the 117th division and he's observing it and he says we could see the west wind carry the greenish yellow and black smoke clouds over the trenches of our neighboring division from many hundreds of pipes set about one meter apart 
streamed poisonous jets of gas, which after about 50 metres combined into one great gas cloud. Gusts of wind caused ripples in the cloud, but it still held together, expanding and threatening as it flowed through the damp, heavy atmosphere to where it would have an awful effect on the ranks of our comrades. We felt a little easier when our artillery began to bring down very heavy fire right into the cloud. Shot and shell of all calibres burst in the cloud with the aim of halting it or at least reducing its effect. The gas did indeed swirl about when the shells exploded, but it still reached our trenches. The tack-tack sound of British machine guns, again, different sounds because they're British, showed us that the gas attack was being followed up immediately by that of the infantry, with Indian troops in the lead. However, this attack was beaten back, leaving the field covered in dead and wounded men. The fire of our own artillery slackened somewhat, then English and Scottish troops stormed forward. The front line of our neighbouring division was overrun. Now, so he's watching this, and then he's one of the his his uh, his battalions moved up to reinforce the uh, Saint Laurent sector, uh, and they take up positions uh, uh, on the around about the railway embankment there. I don't know this area of ground at all. You probably do. The British are in control of Hill Seventy at this time, and those British that might include uh, might well. uh, Walter Spencer, um, which which had to be regained. So this is the fighting. This is the probably the counterattack when Walter Spencer's just moved down. Anyway, so. What, you got, what, what, what happens next then? Take us through the story. Machine gun fire from the left flank enfiladed the Scotsman. The enemy front could be seen to be crumbling gradually from about 1.30pm. Individuals would disengage and crawl away so as to seek the cover of the reverse slope. Without further orders, as soon as the men of the battalion heard cries of hurrah coming from the left, they leapt up and charged forward brilliantly. Over the newly begun trenches of the Scotsmen, past numerous wounded and dead men and all sorts of abandoned equipment we went, taking the first of our prisoners as we did so. For everybody who was there, it was an unforgettable experience. And by 1400 of that day, they'd captured Hell 70 again. It goes backwards and forwards, I believe. This is not a history of the the battle. This is just giving impressions. And by the way, I want to correct what I said. We've not, it's probably not Walter. This area, it's backwards and forwards for some time. So I'm not sure uh, what time this is. No, but it does emphasise the importance of it. It's the dominant ground, Hill 70. It dominates both loose and lens. So... It, it is a vitally important piece of ground. To both sides. To both sides. Now, we, we mentioned earlier that we'd missed something out here. We had missed something out. And, you know, Vi, uh, Vi Rebel Gazeka mentions the Indian troops that were leading the attack. And we should have picked an Indian soldier. We should. Um, There's now, no two ways about that. That's laziness because it's slightly difficult to find a good source from it that, that would suit. Uh, and also, let's be absolutely honest, we didn't think of it, or I didn't think no. of it. No, and, and a few years ago, again, uh, at a similar time, I took the picture of Sampson's headstone. Uh, I visited a uh, memorial to the Indians that uh, were lost in the Great War, uh, and uh, it's, it's at a crossroads between uh, Luce and Neuve-Chapelle, I think. And, and it's magnificent in its design, and it commemorates 4,742 Indian soldiers with no known grave who lost their lives 
uh, during the Great War. And anybody visiting that battlefield, I would recommend pay a visit to that memorial. It's, it's very unusual in its design. They had a great part in the Battle of Loos. Of course, at Nerve Chapelle, they were involved. And uh, let us not forget, if it wasn't for them, they could have been through us. Uh, in 1914. The, the, the Indian Corps was an extremely important element of the army and uh, we, we should, we've made a, we, we have made a mistake on this. Uh, yeah, and I think we agree that all mistakes in the podcast are yours. Well, we have established that that's the that case. That is the yet. principle. But we will do, uh, we will be doing a podcast on the Indians at Gallipoli and a, a, a further one on the Indians perhaps at Nerve Chapelle uh, to, to make up for that in the future. Uh, because we, you have to remember, you can't just miss things out because it's 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 easier to miss them out and i i feel cast down with get yeah i think to be fair we just didn't think of it we just didn't think which is a fairly classic uh, it is the pair of us uh so who's next well this one is uh an absolute cliche uh and you chose him uh, (laughs) (laughs) thanks for that who is it gary it's second lieutenant john sometimes known as jack Kipling. Oh, I, I, I didn't know him, so I'm going to go with John. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a bit of a cliche. Um, but it's a good... Uh, there's lots of interesting stuff about it. There so, is, and he is the son of his father. You know, and, and that's one of the things... Who was his The man who made the cakes. Oh, right. <laughs> Rudyard Kipling, well-known manufacturer of uh, com- com- consumable cakes. Well, they're, they're only just consumable. Uh, now, when was he born? He's born on the seventeenth of August, eighteen ninety-seven. Hang, hang, hang on, eighteen ninety-seven. Oh, good, good point. Eighteen ninety-seven. He was a very young man. He's not eight. He's not eighteen. No, uh, we'll come on to that. Oh, sorry, because, Gary. I'm, because it's just you, that dates. Uh... We will come on to that because um, his parents do actually give permission for him to go abroad. Right. Oh, um, oh, sorry. Now, so he's the son of who? Kipling? Rudyard Kipling? He's the son of Rudyard Kipling and his American wife, Caroline Starr Ballastier. That's easy for you to say. Yeah, no, that's probably why you made me say it. Um, he was educated at Wellington College and uh, Kipling worried about his son while he was uh, at school and he would send him advice to, to work harder, steer clear of beastliness. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot lot of that at Wellington. (laughs) Lose gracefully and not be so carping and critical. So you never got the same advice, Pete, did you? No, no, I've I've always been carping and critical. But it's it's funny, I've noticed this about sons called John, that that fathers can sort of have a strange attitude, sort of worried, sort of, they just worry about them. Have you noticed this? What's your son called, by the way? Jack. No, he's... (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, from October 1913 until September 1914, uh, John Kipling was sent to an army cramp. Now, did he want to go there? Because uh, the, the, uh, uh, this is part of uh, the route. People keep implying that Kitchener's pu- uh, Kitchener, blimey, uh, Kipling's pushing him, but he seems to have wanted to be in the army. He went to army crammers. He, he seems keen. Yeah, and again, we'll come on to that. But yes, he did. He, it may well have been that he wanted to please his father, as some sons do, obviously. Not your job. Not mine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when the war broke out, Kipling's only 16. But his father, uh, you know, was, was well known at this stage. And these are a few lines 
sorry, these are the last few lines of For All We Have and Are, which was published in 1914. And it says, There is but one task for all, one life for each to give. Who stands if freedom fall? Who dies if England live? Now, incredibly patriotic lines. You know, well, he was a propagandist for the British it, Empire, wasn't he? He was, and it's typically Kipling, isn't it? So, you know, the cynics claim that it, it demonstrates that Rudyard Kipling was prepared to give his son uh, rather than his own life, you know, for the empire. That is a bit cynical. Yeah, but, he, you know, Kipling did try to get his son a commission. He'd already been, John had already been rejected for service by the Royal Navy. And this was due to his severe short-sightedness, something that you and I both understand. Uh, he was once again rejected when he applied to the army. It makes you go blind, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but seemingly only in one eye. Um, at this point, Roger Kipling intervened. He was a personal friend of Earl Roberts. And oh, the old VC and previous yeah, commander-in-chief. Yeah, and he managed to get his son commissioned on the 15th of August... 1914 and knowing that your maths is somewhat questionable at this point he was not quite 17. Now um, why didn't your dad intervene with uh, the commander-in-chief of the British Army to get you a commission when you joined the army? Um, Because he was glad to see the back of me. Well we could have got you a commission while he was seeing the back of you. I wrote to my dad after two weeks uh, in the army saying dad made a terrible mistake I want to leave and he wrote back to me and just said no. (laughs) (laughs) a supportive father yeah right sorry to your point you know john kipling's going along with this willingly you know the army was now his chosen career and he was clearly gaining in confidence uh judging from some of the quotes from the correspondence with his father now one of these is a cracker and uh john wrote i wish i didn't miss you so much as i do old man you were a huge nuisance at times, but I seem to have got fond of you in some incomprehensible way. <laughs> if only your son felt as fond of you. No, but what a fantastic note to write to your father. Uh, it's just some incomprehensible way. Uh, and and, and the, the, the emotion of seem, seem to have got fond of you. But it demonstrates a really good sense, sense of humour. Yeah, that, that is funny. That is funny. Now, Kipling, Rudyard Kipling, took great pleasure in his son John's evident growing maturity, but he was beginning to, to, to worry. Um, oh, worry that he's got him in the army. Yeah, I mean, Ryder Haggard, who was a good friend of the Kiplings. Is that the author? It is the author. As opposed to the. As opposed to. As opposed to the butcher who works at Dewhurst. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, he was a good friend of the Kiplings, and he saw them on the 24th of March, 1915. And this is what he recorded in his diary, Pete. You're going to tell us. Yeah. He said, Ryder Haggard said, their boy John is an officer in the Irish Guards, and you can see they are terrified lest he should be sent to the front and killed. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? It is, because although he's still a day short of his 18th birthday, his parents signed... So it's in writing, signed permission to allow him to to serve overseas. And 2nd Lieutenant John Kipling was sent to France in August with the 2nd Irish Guards, uh, 2nd Irish Guards in the Guards Division. Now, by this time, his father was already working at the front uh, as a war correspondent. So he was already there. Not not too close to the front, then? 
Well, not not as close as John's going to be, no. So at this point, John Kipling still is enjoying army life. But again, from his letters, one quote is really interesting as, as he sort of gathers the grim realities of the Western Front, uh, which are becoming evident, evident to him by this time. And he says, If I live to get back again, I'm going to get myself the smartest two-seater, Hispana Sousa, that can be got and get a bit of enjoyment of life out of it. Although at that very moment, his idea of luxury would have been a hot tap, I think. Um, By the way, the next time you're in town, would you get me an identification disc? As I have gone and lost mine, I think you could get one at the stores. Just an aluminium disc with a string through it like this. It is quite impossible to get one out here, or I wouldn't trouble you about it. It's a routine order that we have to have them. Yes, I wonder if he had one in when it because uh, you'll see why we all see why, listeners. Not that anyone doesn't know this cliched story that uh, Gary selected for us, uh, and a good story it is too, Gary. So uh, what happens? Well, it's it's now that the blow falls, and John Kipling was reported injured and missing when his battalion attacked on the 27th of September during the Battle of Luce. And you're going to be Captain Bird of the 2nd Irish Guard. I am. The wood was captured, but it was under heavy fire of every variety. Two of my men say they saw your son limping just by the Red House, and one said he saw him fall, and somebody ran to his assistance, probably his orderly, who is also missing. The platoon sergeant of number 5, however, tells me your son did not go to the Red House. I am very hopeful that he is a prisoner. Now, I, I'm getting the sense that this is like so many of these things that, that, that Richard Van Emden has dealt with in his books and that often you try and find out what's happened to somebody and, and you get contradictory reports. Uh, I mean, you've identified that the reports where he's meant to have been wounded in the head and to be staggering around blind, half-blinded or completely blinded. Um, and yeah. Then, and and the, there are... But there's no, also one guardsman reported that he was blown to smithereens. You know, so there are multiple reports, and and frankly, you know, it was bitter fighting. Nobody knows. Um, now his his body isn't recovered, is he? And 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 it is lost. Hence the point about it's a shame he didn't have uh, the um, the identity disc. Yeah, and and the 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 news that they've been dreading reaches the Kipling's home on the second of October, um, and. <sighs> Arguably, the Kipling suppressed their grief and they closed themselves off from the, the, the outside world. Uh, Rudyard Kipling himself wrote to General Lionel Dunters, Dunsterville, sorry, and he wrote, It was a short life. I'm sorry that all the year's work ended in that one afternoon, but lots of people are in our position and it's something to have bred a man. The wife is standing it wonderfully, though she, of course, clings to the bare hope of his being a prisoner. I've seen what shells can do, and I don't. That's, um, I think it shows he's got a pride in that his son was man enough to do it. Uh, it yeah. He is, it, it's realistic about, I'm not sure his wife, I think there was trouble between them, but... Uh, yeah, and Kipling, you know, he, he worked to, to forget. So he would later write the history of the Irish Guards in the Great War. I've got it. And his report on the 27th of September seems quite cold because he says, Of the officers, 2nd Lieutenant Packenham Law had died of wounds. 2nd Lieutenants Clifford and Kipling were missing. 
It was a fair average for the day of a debut and taught them something for their future guidance. It sounds cold, but, but in actual fact, that's one way of dealing with things. We, it, it's just to be matter of fact and to get on with it. Um, in the sense that what, what, what could he put in an official history of Irish guards? How could he put it? It's a history. He can't put his feelings into it, can he? It would read very, very strange. Now, uh, in 1917, Kipling is appointed as literary advisor to the Imperial War Graves Commission. And, uh, and he did something quite remarkable, in my view. He was the man who conceived the inscription for the headstones of the unknown dead. Uh, and, and I think it's amazing because it, it, oh, not religious, but a soldier of the great war known unto God. And this is, this is right at home, this is, isn't it? It, it really is. It is. And, um, you know, if you ask certainly of the English speaking countries of the world what's written on those, uh, headstones, everybody will know that. Now, he also wrote, um, uh, a number of uh, uh, epitaphs of war, uh, which were included in one volume. And I'm going to read uh, a, a very short one. This is called A Son. And it reads, My son died laughing at some jest. I would I knew what it were. And it might serve me at a time when jests are few. Yeah, I think that's I mean, he's he's treading on his own emotions here. He is here, yeah. and he, and it's coming through in the work that he's doing. Now, interestingly, the grave of John Kipling was identified in 1992 in St Mary's ADS Cemetery in Hain. Now, I've been there, and again, with my psychic abilities, I took a photograph of that uh, headstone, which I've sent to you, and will put up as part of... We will. Uh, 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 leading into this uh, are you, Now, there's controversy over this, isn't there? Uh, uh, does it matter to... Uh, I mean, I, I have to say, I don't... There are articles in Stand 2 and things like this about this, and I tend not to read them because I'm not sure I care whether it's him or not in the sense of uh, it's demeaning to the person if it's not Kipling. And no, and, and I think it's generally accepted now. I mean, the only thing that was known for certain in 1992 was that it was a, a, a second lieutenant of the uh, Irish Guards. And that was all that, but but why was that officer there? It was It's not where you would expect the Irish Guards to be. So I think it's generally accepted. Now, here's a poem by Rudyard Kipling that may seem relevant, and it may surprise you that it certainly surprised me. It's not the, the one that you might think. It, it comes from a, a book of mixed poems and stories which was published by Macmillan and Co. in 1917. Ever by your bedside. So during the war, and it's called A Diversity of Creatures. That fleshed we had nursed from the first in all cleanness was given to corruption unveiled and assailed by the malice of heaven, by the heart-shaking jests of decay where it lulled on the wires, to be blanched or gay-painted by fumes, to be cindered by fires, to be senselessly tossed and retossed in stale mutilation from crater to crater, for this we shall take expiation. But who shall return us our children? I think that's really... I mean, that's what he... That seems to express that perfectly the, the the emotions that he must have been feeling about his uh, his lad now interestingly many people think that the poem my boy jack um is about his son john who he, he referred to as jack when um 
it's it's actually a poem uh, written about a 16-year-old Jack Cornwall, who was the youngest recipient of a VC, who died at the Battle of Jutland. But it was, uh, in 1997, the title of a play written by David Haig, which did examine how grief affected Kipling following the death of his son, John, uh, and it was later adapted for TV. And I'm going to read a little of that, if I may. Of course. Um, this is my boy Jack, which I always assumed was written about his son. But think about the timing. This was written in 1916. His son had died less than six months previously. Have you news of my boy Jack? Not this tide. When do you think that he'll come back? Not with this wind blowing and this tide. Has anyone else had word of him? Not this tide. For what is sunk and will hardly swim? Not with this wind blowing and this tide. Oh dear, what comfort can I find? None this tide, nor any tide, except he did not shame his kind, not even with that wind blowing and that tide. Then hold your head up all the more, this tide and every tide, because he was the son you bore and gave to that wind blowing and that tide. I think it's about his son as well, definitely. It's got to be in his mind, hasn't it, at that time? Uh, 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 I think that's a... That, that's a I'm not... <laughs> being a cultural desert, I, I hadn't really noticed that poem before. Uh, that's quite emotive, isn't it? Uh, so um, how do we feel about it uh, overall, then? Well, I think, you know, loose as a battle is often overshadowed. overshadowed. Um, it, it is a, an area of the battlefield that uh, is perhaps not visited as much... Not by me, ...as as it should be. Um, It's got some interesting uh, topography and, uh, uh, for example, there were were large-scale battles at places called the Quarries, for example, where um, the the former Queen Mother's uh, brother died, I believe. Um, So it is well worth a visit. Uh, It's it's quite an industrial area. Um, but you can still get an idea of of the fighting even to this day. And we've tried to show that uh, we are aware that the real war is still going on between the French and the Germans. Uh, we've forgotten to do to represent the the, the massive contribution of the of, of the Indian Corps, but that's uh, we've apologised for that now. Uh, but what we've tried to do is just to give an idea of what men went through during that last week of September 1915. Uh, and I think it's always interesting, we did it with the Somme, I think it's interesting to pick individual soldiers and their part in a you know, large-scale battle and what they saw. Uh, it, it, you know, Pri- Private Warner, for example, and his experiences on Hill 70 were very much different to the German uh, staff sergeant, um, Gazeika, uh, but you know, two sides of, of the same coin, as it were. I, I find it fascinating when we do this, and, I, and I'd, I'd like to pick something else to do. Thank you very much, Gary. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Pete. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?